0: This show is distributed by clouds. Welcome.
1: Welcome to episode 189 of TechSync, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Hey, Jason, how you doing? Good, how are you Yeah, pretty good. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. So what's the latest? I've um, been continuing to work on Plugio to make the final rollout of the new sales site. Mainly been working on, I guess, the polishing at this stage. Uh, a lot of um, things like the email drip campaigns and... Um, just, yeah, just making sure it all works. You know, the little stuff that we've been doing with AnyFood, like when you kind of focus on a journey mm-hmm. and you, every journey has so much detail. And if you get it wrong, the user's going to get lost along the way and you know that they're going to drop off. So you've got to kind of got to keep on going through each journey, refining it and make sure it works. And there's a right. lot of journeys with Plugio. Like there's the, um, for example, the email stats, you know, it regularly it sends you stats once a week. And it's also uh, the five-day email course and then signing up for plugio and then upgrading various different paths all that stuff adds up just been working on it for two years at this stage so there's just there's a lot of more stuff. than you thought yeah <laughs> yeah how about you
0: well I, well let's see how much how, how far are you from uh the the big release
1: very close very close um I, is it like one
0: of those is it like one of those movies where you're running down a hallway like in a, those horror movies and the hallway keeps stretching really far the more you run?
1: Well, not so much. There's there's just there is definitive things that there's just no point going live without them. So right now what I have left to do this this is what I have left to do as it is seen at this minute is the up, each upgrade journey for each of the different magic uh, levers. So mm-hmm. so one of the magic levers is the number of Twitter accounts. I've just done that. So that if you try and add, because it's complicated because the system needs you to be able to reconnect your existing Twitter account. So that's kind of like a, diff, a different thing that it needs to know about. So if you have one Twitter account, so it, because we're going freemium, you're only allowed one Twitter account, right? Okay. So you click add new Twitter account. Now you would say, oh, well, just, you know, they've already got a Twitter account. So tell them, no, they can't add new Twitter account. But the thing is, at this stage, you need to send them to Twitter just in case they're reconnecting their existing Twitter account. Right. See what I'm saying? So it's like little confusing difficulties like that. Um, So anyway, so that's the upgrade journey for the Twitter accounts. And then I've got upgrade journeys for the friend finder system and the feed system and the schedule system and all this. So each of those upgrade journeys needs to be managed very carefully to maximize the possibility of people buying.
0: Well, and also it's the attention to detail that makes a product great as opposed to mediocre. I mean, not just in terms of upgrading or people buying it, but internally, right? So it's like when you spend that extra time and you make things extra simple and, and, and extra slick, that's when people are like, I love this thing.
1: Yeah. Uh, that's, that's what I That's what I'm hoping. I think yeah. that I mean, I've got, like I said, I've got a lot of great feedback. I think I said this in the last couple of shows about the um, user interface. And now the sales sites can be much better. We, we had done this big stern looking corporate looking sales site, which was our first pass. But then, right. but then we spent some time actually looking at the customers. I mean, literally went went through the Plugio database, got the Twitter handles of all of the people, and looked at their Twitter profiles and looked at those people. They're just like average people.
0: <laughs> average people in, in what way? Average in the sense that they're not corporations or that they're not technologists or what, what are these what are these people who are what who are these people?
1: Well, I think I, I can't remember whether I told this to you offline or or, or on the show. But like there's one, there's an 81 year old granny (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) who uses Plugio and um, just kind of, you know, maybe stay at home moms and people who are a a lot of um, virtual admins use it, VAs. Okay. So instead of a PA, it's a VA. And so VAs will be typically um, a stay at home mom who will kind of have secretarial skills and they'll work for, you know, five or 10 clients or whatever as a a sort of virtual um, assistant. And so they will want to manage, you know, five Twitter accounts, but they don't want to spend a thousand bucks with Hootsuite.
0: Okay. So let me ask you this. Okay. Well, that's the great opportunity there. I think the fact that Hootsuite, as we've talked about in the last show, uh, we don't have to get back into it, but the fact that they, they left that middle ground open or that middle market open, that's really a sweet spot for you. Um, but you, you mentioned that you only allow one Twitter client for Plugio. You mean just for the premium version. The yeah, free yeah. for the free version of Plugio, you have one Twitter client, but for for more, one of one or more of the paid versions that you can have multiple accounts that you manage.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Oh, you've, cool. just, re- you've just reminded me there's another piece of work that I forgot, which is um, we're adding this feature where you can have multiple logins per account because that seems to be like a standard feature. It's, I guess it's team members, you'd call it. Mm-hmm. So um, I need to actually add that functionality to make it work. That's another thing I need to do. Thanks for Am reminding I? me.
0: Good. <laughs> <laughs> well, are, you, are you still, are you still right about the 4,000? You haven't increased your revenue. It's still right at the 4,000 point per month?
1: Yeah, it it is. Um, but there seems to be more interest in it now that this, uh, I mean, interestingly enough, the new sales site, I would have expected it, to have stopped sales altogether, but it hasn't. And the people who are signing up, signing up for higher price points now, which is interesting. So um, there's there's still a nice uh, turnover of signups at this stage. But
0: uh, so have you increased revenue, or is it stay even, break even at this it's point? It's
1: kind of uh, slow, even, slowly is it, is creeping it... up to the four thousand.
0: Okay. So, but once you release a new version, are you going to do a big marketing blitz?
1: Mm. Yeah, we're going to do we can do a very big push. So so the the way that we've done the pricing is. We're going for a higher level pricing so that we can then do, um, well, firstly, because we feel like it's worth it. And secondly, so that uh, we can we can actually offer discounts to people. So for okay. example, with 300,000 users on the TinyGrab emailing list, the, fir- the first thing we're going to do is offer a substantial discount for anyone if they sign up. I'm kind of thinking like a 50% discount if they sign up within two days of receiving the email so like a really big discount but um
0: yeah it's it's funny how it works that way that's sort of i don't know if it's a cognitive bias but if something char if somebody something costs a hundred dollars and you know it normally costs 300 it's still the same amount of money to you but you feel since you feel like you're getting a deal you're much more apt to buy it yeah (laughs) and I, i i watched an episode on um I listened to an episode of uh, I think it was NPR Planet Money, and they were talking about the high cost of education and these and these why these colleges keep raising their tuition so much. I mean, they're far outpassing inflation. Yeah. And one of the reasons they cited was that well, we we want to look like we're if we charge more than we look like we're higher value, right? If we charge twenty thousand dollars a year versus five thousand dollars a year, yeah, and especially if our if the competing universities are charging twenty thousand dollars a year, they don't want to look like they're a lower end university. So, but then if they charge more, they, what they do is, in addition to establishing that value relative to their competition, then they can give discounts to students like, oh, hey, you know, you, we've accepted you as a student and we've offered you this $10,000 scholarship or grant <laughs> discount, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, so, if you're thinking between a couple of universities and the one that offers you this big, you know, discount or grant or scholarship or whatever you want to call it um you're you're, you're more likely to think oh man i got all the money i'm getting from the school i should probably go there yeah that is a very that is a good strategy
1: yeah i mean this, this i mean remember jason cohen said it um on the show that we recently interviewed him he basically said one of the reasons he hates low price points is there's no room for discounts
0: right <laughs> right mm-hmm. so all right well cool well all right, well, I guess keep us posted. It sounds like you're making good progress. I mean, you seem completely absorbed by it. Every time I talk to you, it's, it's plug you, plug you, right? I mean, this is sort of dominating your, your brain space. It is until I,
1: until I can push it out the door, you know? Um, I mean, to, uh, since, since, the uh, microconf, it's just really been on my mind. Like I've totally had a plan of action and want to move forward with it and get it done. And then once it's done, then I f- I'll feel like I can take a little bit of a rest.
0: Right. No, that's good. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking a little bit more about your kickstrapping term. You can Go on then. And one, I think you need to write that blog post. I do. You do. I, I think it's. I think it's good enough. I think it's worth, worth a blog post, um, especially with the evidence of these of these. Um, I don't know uh, projects that have been on there that have, have raised so much money. The, the light table and the one with that holds the, the iPad. Like a, I guess, a whole iPad, like a screen for a keyboard, well, or something. And
1: the Pebble, the Pebble watch, which is um, which has raised ten million.
0: Exactly right. So I, th- I think you should go ahead and write. Why don't Why don't you? Uh, I mean, you don't have to make it a ten hour super post, but why not make one like three or four paragraphs? Just something you
1: know? simple that you might put on Google Plus, but I'll put it on my. Uh, yeah,
0: my site. I, you know, spend an hour, just an hour. Okay, you know, just an hour. Just and you use these three sample projects is as, as evidence like here's examples of what what kickstrapping is why it's why it may have uh it might introduce a new category of startup it's not bootstrapping it's not uh, fundraising um or, or investment based startup it's the something else so you're getting future customers to commit to buying something um as, as long as you're able to release it and that's a uh, that's a whole new category and has a lot of value.
1: Well, we we actually got an email from Matt Swanson um, who pointed it, pointed us out to another Kickstarter project, which is uh, Let's Code Test Driven JavaScript. I guess mm-hmm. what what are they doing? Um, I think they're writing a tech. It's it's a technology project. Um, what is it? Is it a book? Is it a?
0: Yeah, I wasn't sure. I, I can't remember what that was. I remember looking at it briefly. Screencast. Awesome. A okay. screencast. It's a okay. screencast.
1: So they've raised. Um,
0: Thirty three thousand dollars
1: to produce a screencast um, for for test driven JavaScript.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. It's amazing that there's that much money for something like that. This goes to show you.
1: I mean, I, I if, you know, if I was starting from scratch, I would reevaluate. I would, I would totally reevaluate the way that I've laid it out now. What do you mean? I would, I would use the kickstrapping uh, format. You know, like if I was <laughs> well, going to it- do plug, I mean it. If let's say this, this was well known about and go back two years, if I was going to start Plugio, I would totally go, okay, I'm going to kickstrap this.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's better. I think it's even better than the, um, the landing page concept. I mean, it's like an, it's a, it's the next step. In that yeah. it's, it's it, you can't really go back in time because this thing didn't really exist back in time, so it's not really fair. Well, you're not being fair to yourself to say, "Oh, I should have done it this way." It's just like this is sort of a new thing that's evolved. No, I'm just
1: saying I, I would do it if, if I could, is what I mean.
0: Right now, so if you were starting something right now, and it was sort of product based, or it was it wasn't it wasn't transaction based? So someone who either pays a monthly fee or buys something, whether um, whether it's a physical product or they buy software or whatever it is, that kickstrapping your project is is is. It's the next evolution of say doing the landing page concept. Mm-hmm. You know the whole the whole lean startup. They say, Oh, you know, just create a landing page. It describes your concept and see if you can capture email addresses that 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 will demonstrate a certain amount of interest and your email list to start with, that kind of thing. But the kickstrapping, if someone really the way that differs fundamentally is A, you get money in if you're able to raise a certain amount, right? You actually raise the money. You need to either live off of to work on it or to but buy look at this
1: i mean this is one guy right that raised thirty-three thousand to do a screencast i mean that's enough to keep you going for a year you know especially well, when,
0: know. depends who you are if it depends a-
1: who but for for a lot of people starting out right or for you know i think for a lot of people it would be enough to get well okay
0: you, d- you didn't have a family or kids if you're if you're single
1: yeah you could probably do it look it's enough to keep you going for three months if you're jason yeah right <laughs> okay three months fair enough it's a three-month runway that's a three yeah, month runway, no, right it's, there. It's, you can you could focus on nothing else except for this, and then try and get more sales in.
0: Yeah, it's real. No, it's real money. Yeah. But see, the, the thing about it is that um, it, it, it. I think it just even more validates your product than than just people signing up. and Say, hey, let me know when it's ready. It's people people were putting real money down, so it's real market validation. I don't know. I think um, I think it's really smart way to do things now i think you're going to see this stuff pop up all over the place that's why i think you should go ahead and write the the sort of you know the definitive article on what kickstrapping is and what you think it's going to become and why it adds value in pointing out the examples of it i, I don't know i think it's worth it
1: okay well i'll, I'll I take that under consideration my- and usually when you off- offer me that this kind of advice i go away and do it so <laughs> expect to, expect to see a, a post
0: sorry i guess i gave you homework huh (laughs) well you're just gonna be pissed if like six weeks later someone writes it goes to number one on hacker news and it becomes a big deal and you know you're like damn it (laughs) 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 and i grabbed that one i could i know i mean i
1: i I would if i was you know i recommend to any listener listen to this show if they're at the beginning of their project to seriously take this this concept on board and think about can they apply it to their project because it's it's very cool
0: I was thinking about it also in terms of, like, for political campaigns. Like, why not use kickstrapping? So it's like if you donate to some political campaign and you don't think it – like, if you get a solicitation for that and you're thinking, well, what's the, what's the real viability of this candidate? Well, am I just throwing money away? But if they, if they can raise $10 million or something, or you know, then you're like, okay, well, that's real money. Maybe it's worth throwing in my 50 bucks or something. And I was also thinking you should do kickstrapping for the national debt like we have a fifty dollar <laughs> national debt. Like, I'm not going to put in like five grand to go into some hole. This is going to be wasted anyway. But if you had like, but if everyone goes for it, like, let's all just heave ho and you know, get rid of this national debt. That's actually
1: know? awesome. That's a good idea. Well, because because I remember I, I called you up like, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago and told you about my idea for kickstrapping for failed TV series. Right. Right. I totally think they should do that because look, like for t- take for example this TV show that I watched called Awake. Did you ever see that show? No, no. Okay, so Awake it was on Hulu and basically it was about this guy who was um he was when he went to sleep he woke up. So he was in two different worlds. He he basically had a car crash and in one world his wife died and his son was alive in the other world it was the other way around. And so it was it was very it was an just an interesting concept um cuz he was in these two different worlds and there was crossover between the worlds and all that different stuff. But anyway, it didn't, it didn't continue the show, but it had about 7 million viewers, right? It, mm. it just wasn't enough for what they wanted. They, they wanted like 20 million or something like that. I don't know, some really big number. But when you've got 7 million people watching something, I mean, how hard is it going to be to get a number of those to, to contribute like 100 bucks? You could easily right. raise 10 or 20 million, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know? Uh,
0: that's, that's, I guess, not a bad way. I mean, they could have done that with Stargate Universe. Yeah, Stargate Universe. They, they, or something if we back in time, like Arrested Development, these sort of cult, fo- had like, these cult followings, or uh, was it Firefly, the TV show Firefly? I mean, how
1: much would you get if if 100,000 people put in 100 bucks? What's that?
0: 100,000 people put in 100 bucks?
1: That would be 10 million.
0: Exactly. And to, I mean,
1: what they say, Stargate Universe was like a million an episode or something.
0: You get 10 episodes. Yeah, 10 you e- could buy episodes. Said so like, can we finance if people want a 13. Um, episode season or a 24 episode season then there's so much we need to raise and I don't know I would be um, then they become I and mean, then actually get your name as a producer <laughs> but I mean wouldn't you wouldn't you have put in a hundred bucks to keep Stargate going I'd think seriously about it yeah I
1: would I totally without without a blank you know without thinking about it and I would think that of the of the like five million viewers it would be pretty easy to find a hundred thousand willing to put in a hundred
0: well, because there's so few good things on TV uh, that I really, you know, that I, at least that I want to watch that I, it's very disappointing when, when they go off the air and you're just like scrambling to find anything that's entertaining. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, anyway. uh, yeah, I think it's, I think, uh, I think it's not a bad idea. Um, I think we're going to see more and more of this. I think it's um, the crowdfunding approach to, um, I don't know, to, to other, apply to other things other than sort of just, you know, artistic and nonprofit. Um, ventures, yeah. I think we see expand like a startup, or I don't know if we see political campaigns. Maybe there are um, limitations to that,
1: but yeah, like the national debt idea, they should <laughs> Kickstarter should do that. They should have a national debt Kickstarter. When I mean, it gets you or I could start it, couldn't we? You know that would be that would actually be a great uh, promotional tool for texting. <laughs> we should do yeah. that. We should start. The it's like, hey,
0: hey, those assholes over at Ted are trying to get <laughs> the national debt with Kickstarter. We should, do Blah. We should totally. Do that. We look like a couple of clowns, but you know it might be kind of funny.
1: <laughs> that's that's a great that's a great micro opportunity right there to get some press for Ted. <laughs>
0: that's a PR stunt. Yeah, that's what that is. Uh, okay, well we'll have to put that on our list. You know, the thing is, is like I, I know we do. We we come up with all these crazy ideas on the show, and it just we just don't have the bandwidth to do them. I mean, I still think the helium three idea back from like a year and a half ago. Whenever we interviewed, um, uh, do you what his name was, no. uh, the, the, the geologist who told us about the helium three on the moon and mining that, and this, the astronaut who's a big proponent of it, solving our energy crisis. I'm blanking. Helium. Sorry. Well, I don't know. I mean, you know that I, I like that was a we, we were going we to write a, a a big article, a call to action, mining yeah. helium three. Um, okay. But well, you remember you remember the concept. You just don't remember the names.
1: It was. Well. Uh, Can't find actually it. Actually, it was just us talking about it. and, no, then, and then we spoke no. to Jay Schievel.
0: Jay Schievel was the one who gave us the idea. We didn't know about it until he. Oh yeah, Jay Schievel, Yeah. He brought it up in our interview. Okay. Yeah, and he just said because we were talking about the energy crisis in terms of like we're asking about the um you know, running out of, uh, oil and cause he's being a geologist, like he specialized in, in, in finding, uh, oil, um, oil, I don't know, deposits, oil, uh, reservoirs or, or the hell. Um, and, uh, he said that, uh, you know, regardless, the thing we really need to do is go after helium three. I've, I've been trying to get this guy on the show who
1: is basically a free energy skeptic, but he's also a, like a free energy tester. So he flies around the world checking out people's claims, about free energy because there's there's thousands of people who've claimed they've created over unity devices that that create excess energy okay so and um i saw him on uh on a, on a show somewhere i can't remember the name of it but um anyway i thought that oh yeah mark dancy is his name i thought it'd be kind of cool to to talk to someone like that so that was i was thinking of doing that for a solo interview but um yeah. he hasn't he hasn't responded yet so if anyone knows yeah, Mark well- Dancy.
0: Welcome to my world of, <laughs> like, you know, emailing uh, potential interview guests and just getting no response. It's yeah. like, well, you, you know who I want to, uh, uh, someone I want to interview is, um, I can't remember the guy's name, but he he sort of started the sort of do-it-yourself biohacking movement. Mm-hmm. So uh, you see this pop up on Wired uh, every once in a while, the Wired magazine, they they seem to cover it a lot. And it's this idea of being able to do, like, these home... Having like a home, um, you know, almost like a molecular biology lab where you can, um, you know, hack on uh, sort of genomes or something like that. Yeah, and great stuff. Just like you know, we do on computers, or you might do it with a chemistry set. And I guess there some stuff I've read recently. I, there are like just sort of like these open ha- biohacker spaces. So there'll be like an like an office space. There's one. There's um, I can't remember the name of, it, but like there's like, there, there there there's like one of these in like 20 different cities. And so you like, you can pay a hundred dollars a month and use the laboratory can like hmm. show up and, and uh, you know, cause not everybody has a spare five or $10,000 to buy the, uh, the basic equipment that you would need. And uh, I thought that would be someone cool to talk to. Hmm. Yeah. That, we'll see. Cool. that was cool. You know, what got me on that, um, on that vein of thinking was I read an article about um, uh, Craig Venter um, with his, uh, his company synthetic, synthetic genomics. Do um, you, you know who Craig Venter is? No. Okay, so he he was uh, the guy. He used to work for, I guess, it was the National Institute of Health back when they were initially doing the Human Genome Project. And he came up with some new ways of of speeding that process up. But because of the bureaucracy in the, uh, in the government agency, he just wasn't able to make any progress. So he's like, screw it. I'm going to go raise some money and do this separately. And so I, th- I think it was called Solera... Um, but, uh, I may be wrong on that, but he started this company and they ended up tying they, I mean, the, what ended up happening is there became, there's a lot of bad blood between him and his company and the national Institute of health. Hmm. And as, as you can imagine, competition you left us and you're gonna start your competing effort and you know, people get their feelings hurt and get their egos hurt. And, um, in a very short period of time, they, they caught up and I think they probably did it faster, but I guess they had some political agreement that like we're just going to announce that we both sequenced it at the same time. Mm. And uh, so then he, he, he went on and did some other, uh, some other stuff. And, but more recently <clears throat> he's working on it, it, on being able to uh, create uh, synthetic um, organisms that can say secrete biodiesel or, uh, or different things, you know, like, or, or, or uh, consume like uh, carbon and so things that can solve our, our, our major problems. Um, environmental problems as well as like being able to excrete like uh, medicines and things like that. And uh, it's just fascinating. I I was thinking, I was thinking the other day, it's like, you know, the, the, like that thing, that, that effort, if they're able to to do this stuff and make and, and bring this stuff to scale is about as important as anything that's going on right now in our world, because we have like these massive kind of, global environmental problems, (laughs) you know, whether it's pollution or running out of um, fossil fuels or global warming or whatever they are. I mean, they're massive in scale, but if you have some replicating, you know, uh, single cell or or simple organisms that can actually excrete certain things or consume these uh, pollutants or whatever, I mean, that's just unbelievable what the implications are. And uh, I was thinking that just I find the whole stuff just super cool. And the fact that you could actually maybe experiment with stuff yourself in some limited way would be really fun. Well,
1: that's interesting because I was uh, just recently watching um, a TED talk by Cynthia Kenyon um, on, uh, on Hulu. And basically, her talk was about experiments that hint of a longer life. And so <laughs> there's there's quite a few experiments that show, you know, if you play around with certain genes that you can basically extend life at least by double or triple. Um, and you know uh, the the guy Aubrey de Grey is it? Yeah Aubrey de Gray, yeah, so there's there's so much stuff coming through from that perspective that we're going to have to get a handle on this stuff, you know <laughs> because yeah. if everyone's living two or three times longer, whoa
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a big deal. I, I mean I, I think if I was in college right now and I was and I was scientifically minded and I was trying to figure out what I would do, I think it would be a really hard choice to say, do I want to shoot and try and go and design? rockets at SpaceX, go work at synth- synthetic genomics or one of the competitors in trying to design organisms that are going to re-engineer our future, or go into a startup through like Y Combinator. <laughs> you know, I mean, th- those options are also amazing that it, it I mean, I guess it kind of depends on your band. If you're more bio, if you're more of a biology type person or you're more of a, you know, science nerd, or you're more of like an entrepreneur, I guess you kind of
1: would lean one way or the other. But or you could be uh, like me and say, I want to go and start a band.
0: And you can go start a band right <laughs> live off four thousand dollars a year <laughs> live in your parents' basement and drive a van with your buddies to uh, listen to 20 people listening to you play <laughs>
1: yeah, Well, it was a good life.
0: <laughs> it was fun well, that's the kind of stuff you could do in your early mid twenties right? right It's like uh, you know it's whatever but so I was thinking along the lines of this sort of synthetic um, this synthetic uh, engineering of cell engineering and um, oh and so one thing I was to say that so Before I get into that, so Craig Venter, he created, they created the first synthetic cell. So what they did is they created the base pairs one by one. It was a million base pairs, I think, or Mm -hmm. genome. It's a million genes or something. And they put the genome into another bacteria. And essentially what ends up happening is that genome took over and replaced the cell with what its software was. So like the genome is the software.
1: I mean, how do you... Do the the first million genes in the first place? Like, how do you physically assemble that?
0: I'm not exactly sure. That's something that I was I was starting to do a little research. Like, what's the process? I, I apparently it's pretty complicated. It's pretty. It's oh. pretty. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> right. well, but I am mean, just something... like, do you use little tiny tongs, <laughs> pincers? I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, I maybe may some kind of a chemical process. I don't know if it's a mechanical process or maybe it's some kind of. They use some. You know, sometimes what they'll do, it seems like they'll use simple organisms that do some replication or do as a kind of like mini machines to do things for them. I mean, I'm not a microbiologist, so I don't really know, but um, it's something I want to know more about. So I, I'm thinking about doing a little more research into it because I think it's really cool. But one thing I was thinking is thinking about is like, I think we've talked about this, but the, the, do you, do you know, you're familiar with the Great Pacific Garbage Patch? Nope. Okay, so there's this massive collection of plastic garbage in the Pacific. Apparently, it's larger than the state of Texas, out kind of in between us and say Japan, kind of uh, sort of north. It's just it's just humongous, right? It's just pure plastic garbage, and it's disintegrating. It's it, a lot of it's been disintegrating into these little little beads that are like the size of like uh, you know a few millimeters across. So it's really hard to clean this stuff up. Even if you could get these giant super tankers out there collecting all this garbage, even if it didn't disintegrate, that would be hard enough. And it cost hundreds of billions, not trillions of dollars, probably to clean that stuff up. But to actually clean up these beads that are kind of floating below the surface and the size of all the marine life, that's really, not only would be really expensive, but also would kill all the marine life. But where, do
1: the, where did the beads come from?
0: Well, the, the plastic disintegrates over time to a certain degree it doesn't biodegrade but it it breaks up into these smaller beads and so it gets consumed it gets consumed by the fish and it gets into the into the why does um, it all
1: end up in the one place is that because of the 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 tides and stuff
0: yeah, the currents and tides, it kind of goes there. And apparently there's a few collection points. A, the the Great Pacific Garbage Pack is the, the major one, but I guess they found one in the Atlantic, and there's some smaller ones further south. So it's it's really it's not only really just fundamentally disgusting, it's dangerous because, you know, we eat fish, right? Mm. <laughs> and this fish is, is swimming around and all this disintegrating garbage and plastic. And, it, and it's, I imagine it gets to a point that's probably going to introduce some unhealthy side effects to not only marine, the marine life, but to, uh, to humans. Right, right. So how do you deal with something like that? Well, what you'd want to do is ultimately have some engineered um, algae or something, something that can grow and live in water that would consume all the plastic. But
1: doesn't that sound like that algae is going to itself then become a problem?
0: It could, but it should be run out of plastic. It's just going to (laughs) die, right? I mean, if it consumes all the plastic, then it's dead. I mean, that's what it lives off of. So... I read. i remember, and I was thinking about this because I'd read an art, I felt like I'd remember reading an article about that not too long ago. And it was there's an article about um, these Yale scientists that discovered this um, plastic. I mean this this I'm sorry this fungus that eats plastic.
1: Well, wasn't that like a 16 year old kid or something who who discovered that?
0: That's something else. And I wondered if I could find that too. If you could find that article, I'd appreciate it because I was I was thinking about putting all this together and writing a little post about it, but. So apparently there was this little uh, this this expedition down to the to the Amazon. It was this uh, research scientist, molecular biologist or biochemist at um, Yale, and he took down his students to tend to do some um, collecting samples and analyzing them, their genomes and things like that. And they found this uh, uh, this this fungus, and it, it, it actually naturally eats polyurethane, which is amazing. Okay. Hmm. Right? And it, can, and it can grow in anaerobic or airless environments. So they were thinking, like, we can grow this, put this type of fungus in in these sort of garbage dumps, landfills, where there's not a lot of air under the ground and they can just consume all the plastic. Hmm. It's like, what if you could use those cells? And you can engineer a cell, something, some, some type of bacteria or algae, something that can live in seawater, but that consumes polyurethane, all this garbage that we have floating around the ocean. That
1: would be amazing.
0: Now that would be cool, wouldn't it? So it was it was Daniel
1: Bird, who was a high school student at Waterloo Collegiate Institute, uh, basically discovered a microorganism that can uh, rapidly biodegrade plastic.
0: Ooh, send me the link so we'll add that sure. into.
1: I'll put it in. Yeah, sure. You
0: heard it? You heard it here f- first, folks. <laughs> this is the solution to our our uh, our gigantic, great Pacific garbage patch. As we, <laughs> in, you know, these seaborne bacteria bacteria, algae, or something, you know. Based on this, that's pretty cool. So I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm becoming a big fan. I think I might read. I think there's a biography on um, of Craig Venter, of Life Decoded, or something. That would, I'm thinking about reading. But um,
1: so Elon Musk isn't isn't kind of good enough for you. Now you need to find Craig Venter. You need to find someone even better than Elon.
0: Yeah, I I think to Craig, idolize. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't idolize them. I think they're pretty cool. I'm very impressed with them. I think um, Elon is the most impressive entrepreneur. Right now, I think Steve Jobs has probably made the biggest impact. The fact of what he was doing with Apple, but I think Elon is making a good run for that title. And I think Craig Venter is right there. I think if if he's able to, I mean, sequencing the human genome was a big deal. And but if if, if they're able to do some of the stuff that they're trying to do with like creating a way that they can, at a massive scale, um, create organisms or algae that um, that secretes diesel. Rocket or rocket fuel. I mean, or, or gas. I mean, that's amazing, right? I mean, that's that's the, the implications of that are just um, hard to hard to overstate.
1: Do you think that um, anyone has had the impact that someone like Edison has had? Like it, in modern times, is that even possible?
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. You know, when you get in really early and you do stuff early, like you know, can can anyone have as much impact in mathematics as say, you know? you know, Pythagoras who created with the Pythagorean theorem, Yeah, you know, I mean, it's so stuff, so fundamental that it's used everywhere. Right. So it's like later you enter fields, I think it becomes harder. harder. Yeah. You, you just become a branch on a tree and a smaller and smaller branch. So like if you enter math right now and you math and you say, Oh, I'm going to study algebraic topology. It's like, well, you're going to do something that's so specialized and so limited in scope that, you know, only like, 15 people in the world are even understand what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, but I guess Einstein, right, when he came up, you know, the, the things that he did kind of shook up the foundation of some pretty substantial stuff that was thought of in th- physics before that.
0: Yeah, you, I mean, and I think that's the difference is like if you're able to reshape a field, I mean, that's a different thing. So, like what, what uh, Einstein did and then what the, um, was it like Heisenberg and Schrödinger and, and all the guys who sort of created quantum, you know, physics. That stuff is uh, quantum mechanics. I mean, that was a whole reshaping of a field. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think – I remember talking to a friend of mine about that. Um, he went to get his uh, PhD in, um, in artificial intelligence. And we remember this is in – so this is right when we're our senior year in college. And I was surprised because I thought he was going to go get his PhD in math. I mean, he was so so good at it. And he said, you know, he's like, you know, it'll take the, it'll, it'll take the rest of his college – I mean, his, I'm sorry, his graduate career just to get up to anywhere near the research frontier of like of what's going on. But machine learning was is so nascent that it doesn't take very much time before you're, out, you know, it doesn't take very much study before you're at the, you're at the frontier. is just not, there just hasn't been that much discovered that, that that's really...
1: Um, wow, well, if that's the kind of thing he's looking for, he should get into Node.js. <laughs> you can be at the front of that frontier, and like by the end of a couple of hours.
0: Well, that's kind of similar to the advice I give people who ask me, like you know, they want to get into consulting or they want to get a technology, and what should they do? And I'm like, well, don't jump into a, a technology that's been around for five or ten years because it's going to take you forever to catch up. And plus, a sense of people do it, go jump on something that's like brand new, and go and write some articles and tutorials about it. Just like when I talked to um, uh, Wayne Graham from uh, you know about the Facebook. Gaming stuff, mm-hmm. you know. He, you know, he had said said the same thing. He he started writing about the um, he just sort of writing some further documentation and explanations of the Facebook API. But because it was so new at the time and nobody knew it, and it was so the, the documentation sucked, he wrote like a handful of uh, short, like not even complete tutorials. Like, hey, here's something neat you can do with the Facebook API. He became like the expert on it, and then you know he, he was a, he, a press approached him about writing a book on the subject.
1: Talking talking about um. The whole uh, Node.js thing. Did you see the API-ify
0: put out by Heroku? I saw the title. I didn't read it. What's the story? It's just, it's just
1: really slick. Basically, um, it's, it's a little service that Heroku have put out that you can basically turn any website into a, a JSON API. So you, you go there and you type in the, the web page. It doesn't matter what the web page is. And you specify the DOM attributes. And it's basically going to scrape the page and return it. Uh, return it as json
0: the dom attributes so i, I I'm, I'm yeah so so, so
1: so say for example you you wanted to create like an api from the new york times front page okay All right so you'd go to uh, api if I, you'd type in the name of your you know new york times front page um you type in the home page url and then you'd use basically patterns to pass out that front page and return back the results as json
0: kind of cool have there been any examples of uh, of useful apis created that way
1: uh well i'd say there's kind of uh, hundreds of apis at this stage um i'm just going to ping you a link so you can have a quick look
0: okay
1: domino's pizza menu <laughs> so they're like parsing the domino's site and returning it as api it's just it's just a, it's, it's a cute little thing um obviously there's a hack and use one um you know but anyone can create one for anything really
0: it's a nice yeah, way
1: you- of like piping the web around the place
0: yeah. Yeah. There's an IMDb one. That's kind of cool. Huh. Interesting. I have to play around with that. That's kind of cool. That's yep. clever. Yep. Clever yep. little,
1: uh, Heroku, uh, micro marketing campaign, I guess. Right. Right. Anyway.
0: <laughs> so I got a, um, I got a kind of funny little story. Um, a, um, I won't use his name cause I don't, I uh, know he's still kind of in stealth. So a friend of mine who, um, has a uh, has been through the White Combinator program. He mm-hmm. has a stealth, you know, like I said, stealth startup. And um, he he sent me an email and said that he he needs to create an application that's uh, a very a relatively simple application, a very simple application that's cross-platform that can run on Linux, uh, Windows, mm-hmm. and um, OS X. Mm-hmm. And he said that he sent an email out to like the YC list, and uh, he said there was just like nobody knew how to do that stuff. Like, nobody knows how to write Windows apps or OS apps. Like, they're all web guys or mobile guys now. Yeah, why
1: would they? They don't need it anymore.
0: <laughs> it was so funny. He's like, it was just like silence. He said, either there's no response. Normally, I, th- I guess you get a lot of response from that list because everybody's trying to help you, everyone else out, all the YC alumni and, and everything. And it, he said, and the few people did respond were like, "Yeah, we hired this Windows developer to help us out. And it was a kind of bad experience, and so you know we don't really have anything one to recommend." And so he, said, he sent me an email asking me if I knew anyone, and I was like, "Well, what do you you know?" First, when he said cross platform apps, I thought he meant like mobile apps. You know? mm-hmm. So I said, oh, you can use titanium for that if it's, a, if it's not like a game or something you're trying to create. And then I realized he was talking about desktop stuff. And I was like, well, you can use QT um, and there's a Python bindings to it um, since I, knew, I, I know he knows Python. So I said, you, know, you can use PySide or PyQT and use the QT C++ cross-platform play, framework, which generates... Um, native applications for Linda, Linux, Mac, and Windows, right? But he didn't really want to go that way. He wanted more native stuff because he didn't want to have to deal with another, like a third party thing. Mm-hmm. And but it was just so funny because I was like. You know, it's like, sure, I can, I can help. I said, I can at least build the Windows thing for you really easily. And I was like, you know, I'll just spend a few hours and create something for you over the weekend. Um, and it, it's a little bit of a pain because the, the, the code is, um, the co- he said, well, here's the, the library. And the library needs to create out of the C code. So he gives me, like, the C code of the interface. And I'm like, all right, well, okay, so that has, to, when you build a Windows app, nowadays you use the .NET framework. And you use, which is kind of like Java. Uh, the Java framework and, uh, and, and the Java, the JVM. It is called the CLR, Common Language, Common Language Runtime mm-hmm. in Windows. And it's C so it's like, well, how do you interface this this generic C library with, you know, .NET C Sharp? And there's like a native framework called P Invoke, and it's like a big kind of kind of pain in the butt, but then the other way around is you create like a C++ library, because you have like managed C++, which kind of runs on the framework, and then you you know, do it. But anyway, so it is a little bit of research into like how to do this the right way and as simply as possible without having him have to without asking him to have to change his API. Mm-hmm. And uh but it was really funny is just that uh nobody knows how to do this stuff anymore. It's like you 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 cannot have been if you're in your twenties, you probably don't know how to build desktop apps. <laughs> right? I because mean, if you if you if you came out of school two thousand six, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, it's all web or mobile, right? Yeah, you're not even thinking that way. Yeah. And, and if you are, if you are building desktops at app, desktop apps, for the most part, you're, you're, you, it w- that would probably mean that you went to work for uh, a big company, which means you're not an entrepreneur, which means you're not on the Y Combinator list, email list.
1: Right. Yeah. Interesting. So, but do you, so do you think a lot of, um, but there, but there are still so many shareware apps. Who are they made by? <laughs> People <laughs> in the thirties <30s> and forties. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that what we're saying? Shareware is basically a dying industry.
0: I guess. I think desktop apps and people who write desktop code and, and, and people who write, uh, I, you know, who, who don't build for mobile or web are just, generally speaking, go, are going to be older on average. I mean, if you if you took a collection of mobile developers, or if you just want to ask the people who build this stuff, like, how old are you? I, I think most of them are going to be, you know, going to be... Have people who have been older? It just there wasn't enough incentive, or there was more incentive to build mobile and web. There has been over the last seven or eight years that the the, the gravitational force would have just probably pulled you in that direction. Hmm. So but I mean,
1: you know sort of- what? I mean, if you're developing for native, if you're developing native iPhone, it's mm-hmm. it's pretty similar to developing native uh, Mac apps. You know, you like you, It's not. Let's just say it's not a million miles away.
0: Yeah, using code because you're using Objective C and Cocoa. Yeah.
1: Yeah, And you're using the same basic OS framework, basically.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are people who are iPhone developers who could probably write a Windows, I mean, I'm sorry, a Mac desktop app without too much trouble. I mean, they'd have to probably, you know, spend some time looking through the documentation, trying to figure out how to do things a little differently. But yeah, yeah. it's not like, like, well, when he asked me the Windows stuff, I mean, I was like, I built a basic you know, thing for him in like 45 minutes. And he said, I had to screen share. I'm like, this is what you And he's like, yeah, that's it. And I'm like, yeah, it was. <laughs> he must have been excited. Yeah, it's not a big deal. Because he Even said it was like- so hard to find anyone. Then he found you and you did
1: it in like 45 minutes. <laughs> well,
0: yeah, because he spent like, the the only part that beyond the 45 minutes that was hard is just inter- is interfacing the C library in a simple way. That's a little tricky. But building the Windows app was trivial for me. And I, I was like, I'm like, well, what's the big deal? And he's like, yeah, he's like, I've spent the three, last three weeks trying to find someone, and I've had no success. I'm like, well, that's the problem. You're up in Silicon Valley. You want some real tech done, you got to come down to Pasadena. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you, you know what? Talking about how long stuff takes to do.
0: Oh, by the way, I'm just kidding. For anybody who in Silicon Valley, just kidding. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, so
1: talking about how long stuff takes to do. Uh, since we've been working on Anyfoo, we've been playing this game where we've been estimating how, how long each little task is going to take and how long it really takes. And yeah. given how bad you, your public persona is of estimating, like, you know, Epic Night being kind of two years out kind of thing, um, I was expecting your estimation to be completely wrong, completely off, like miles out. But it's, it's been interesting, like, you're, from, from the terms of micro-estimation, like, specific tasks, you're pretty much dead on, like, you get it exactly right. So I'm, I'm wondering.
0: Actually, actually, I'm less. Yeah, you're I'm less. Actually,
1: you're, you're less. So you'd
0: you say six hours. I say like two, and then I get done in an hour.
1: Well, no. What I'm thinking is, I'm thinking, okay, because I because you've taken a long time with Epic Night, right? I've kind of assuming that whatever you do, you take a long time. So I've been thinking. That's, I think I'm
0: an idiot. I know you made a couple of snide comments. <laughs> I I've caught over the months that you think that I don't that I'm just slow.
1: Okay. So I've been thinking. I've been estimating what I think it's going to take you. But I know that what I think is going to take me is like half that time kind of thing or less. So you, but you've been coming in at the estimates that I think that's how long it would take me, which is great. And it's awesome. So you are. Oh,
0: so your JV, so your hour estimates here weren't hours for the task. They were just how long you thought it was going to take me. Yeah, pretty much. So you basically just think I'm an idiot. No, so you no, said, I, d- I don't oh, think. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's it. So here, here's one of the tasks. Send email <laughs> with attached <test> invoice after <laughs> approval and test. JR estimation, two hours. JV hours, six. Okay. The hours it took one. <laughs> basically so, you're saying i am an <laughs> effing idiot oh, i get it that's right, kind on. of funny you estimated
1: two i said it was going to take you six and you would end up taking you one that's actually kind of kind of funny and i think that anyone who's listened to this podcast may well think the same thing so what's so what i want to know is
0: everybody thinks i'm an idiot no Great. i don't
1: think everyone thinks you're an <laughs> idiot but everyone thinks that your estimation is like obviously jacked so what is the deal why why do you have such trouble um doing the long-term estimation. And I think the probably the reason is, I think you could do really good long-term estimation if you just broke it all down into really, really small tasks. If you just tried to do some upfront thinking, think about, try to think it through, you could probably get those long-term estimations really good.
0: Probably, I could at least get the medium-term estimations, yeah. like what, what it would take, what can get done in the next couple of weeks. I think part of my problem is that I, um, I key, a feature creep is the problem. I I I I fall victim to feature creep. I keep adding, oh, we gotta do this, or we should do that, or we can't release it unless this is done, right? Because I'm a perfectionist and I just want everything done right and I wanna do a whole lot of stuff. And so it just keeps it just keeps growing and morphing into something else. It's not that I don't know how long it's gonna take me to write a chunk of code. It's just that the definition of what this thing is keeps changing and expanding. It's kind of like you know, what it, the definition of a computer in 1975 versus 1985 versus 1995 versus, you know, whatever now. I mean, it's just completely different about the things a computer did. I mean, it, you know, it was like, you know, computers doing desktop uh, publishing in like the early 80s when the Mac came out. That really wasn't what computers were thought to do in the 70s.
1: Right? Okay, so you're iteratively
0: changing the goal
1: as you go. Yeah,
0: you know, I think I just, I you know, I keep moving the goalposts. You know, because I'm like, well, now that I think about it, this thing should do this, this, and this, and and then the other thing is, I have to say, is that there, you know, life intrudes. You know, I think, oh, when I tell you, oh, I think this will take me two weeks, then I forget that, oh, I got a bunch of stuff going on with the kids, and then I'm going to have some work on Uber I need to do, so I might have to cram on that for two or three days and not be able to put any time in any foo, and you know, things like that. Like I just sometimes I, I'm too optimistic about the time that I'm going to have available to allocate to the task.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I mean I tip I typically estimate double of what I take. And it's interesting that you have basically estimated double of what you take. Because that's that I think you you're the same as me in that sense. You for these micro tasks, you're like, okay, you know, worst case scenario, it's going to take me two hours. But actually it ends up taking you an hour. Mm-hmm. So we both kind of estimate in that similar kind of way. So I wonder if there's if there if I mean based on that knowledge and that information, is there anything that you could do to you know, change that, like, don't, you know, not move the goalposts or whatever, somehow change it around or something.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I think the thing is probably shoot for shorter term, smaller goals. I mean, and I think this is probably, this is sort of a common sense approach that most people listening right now are thinking, you know, Jason, (laughs) shoot at least, at least something in like one month, six week release dates, not six month release dates. I mean, don't, don't, it's like you're, it's like you're trying to eat the whole turkey in one bite. You know, you just, maybe it comes dip. from
1: your desktop experience. Cause that's a classic desktop pattern, isn't it? You know, you take, you, you, you release in six month year cycles.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, know, Maybe, <laughs> I, I don't know, but you're right. Well, I, I could tell you that one thing is working. I, 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 ha, I have come around on the doing the micro task list that you and I have going. Cause we, what we did is we created, and this was something you pushed really hard for, um, was creating a Google docs spreadsheet that has a list of our tasks mm-hmm. and how long, and with our estimation of how long, estimation of how long it's going to take, how long it did take. And, uh, and then of course, who's supposed to be doing it. And, uh, I think that's helped a lot. I think it's good. So that, and I think that kind of helps from it probably prevent some of the feature creep. Right. Mm-hmm. Because so what what can what probably happened in, in the past some on any is I'd say, oh, well, I'm going to do I'm going to be working on like the dashboard thing or whatever. And you're like, OK, cool. And then the dashboard concepts expanding and changing or whatever. But you and I aren't really spending a whole lot talking about the details. Mm-hmm. So you don't really know what I'm doing or why so much is just that I'm working on it. Um, but when you and I sit down and go, OK, this is exactly specifically what we're going to do. Mm hmm. And this is how long each of the micro tasks is going to take. It, it probably keeps things going, um, moving along more steadily, but it also just keeps us sort of on the same page. I think
1: there's, there's no visibility the other way. You know, it's like, I'm going to go off and build the website in quotes. It's like, what, (laughs) what the hell's happening? (laughs) What does that mean? mean? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, yeah, breaking, breaking it out into those really small, small chunks. I mean, I've, I've found really, really useful in the past and, uh, yeah, no, I'm really glad that you that you're liking that.
0: Yeah, I guess this I mean I mean, I know most of the stuff we're talking about is like software development, team software development one oh one, you know. I mean this isn't none yeah, of this but is you're
1: a special case, right? Because <laughs> because you you know, you haven't you haven't done it that way. You've pretty much been um a solo coder for most of your career, right? And yeah. that's the way that you work best. So It's, yeah, it may be 101 for people who've been working on Teams for years and years, but how about someone who's only just started working on Teams? It's not.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. So I guess we should just segue into the uh, IndieFu stuff for a few minutes. I mean, there's not a whole lot to tell, I guess, other than the fact that we've been making some progress knocking out these tasks, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the the whole plan is that we have a list of about 10, 12 tasks looking at it right now. Mm -hmm. Most of them with between one to two hours. The estimates are between one to two hours. So, I mean couple of weeks hopefully we'll have all this completely knocked out and at that point i think we're going to be where we can start reaching out to experts in mass to people we haven't um we don't know personally and can't babysit through the process of setting up their profile mm-hmm. right and yeah. i think that's 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 we're going to have more to talk about
1: i think looking at that task list now i'm going to move on to the privacy policy i'm just going to get that done in one go and then on the terms of service i'm just going to go for those big guys because right, we we had previously been saying about sending backwards and forwards text and text, but I honestly think that I can get a good enough first pass for us anyway, okay. both of those. Okay. Okay. So I'll just focus on those um, during our work sessions.
0: That's fine. Oh, you know one thing I want to talk about? So, um, well, you know... Even the fact the fact that some some of the key this stuff is missing, like the dashboard stuff where where you can log as an expert or client and see what sessions you've done in case you need to can or have pending in case you need to cancel a session or request a time change or download an invoice from the session. This is just sort of really standard kind of maintenance stuff mm-hmm. that you that you want that you'd want that 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 our clients and experts have asked actually requested, you know? Um and, and it actually takes up time because I'll get an email from, from one of our experts say, Hey, can you Forward me the the description for that session because I deleted the email. I responded and I forgot to copy it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just silly stuff, right? I mean, it's just basic. And um, so, but despite that, the system is pretty. It just kind of works now, yeah. even with the stuff. It, it works most, and it's, it's pretty. So it's sort of. Um, I don't know. It just sort of runs, which is nice. Um, and we get this next this next sort of set of things done where people the The registration process works a little more smoothly, and the and the um, and sort of some of the email stuff and the dashboard. I think it's going to be really smooth. Um, so hopefully, most of our time will go into not managing the technology or, or writing code. It's just going to be just working, making sure experts and clients are well. That's when know. the real business is going to start. I yeah. think. Yeah. So so speaking of that, um, uh, Lance Jones, who uh, he's our uh, conversion or AB. Of conversion testing expert who we interviewed uh, quite a while back. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, he just recently wrote a post on AB conversion, uh, AB testing, and he didn't. I don't even think he put it on Hacker News or did anything big. He just there was his. I um, say his girlfriend, <laughs> uh, Joanna, Joanna Weeby. Hey, Joanna Weeb, his Weeb. partner. There. <laughs> It's like awkward they're not they they're like they're not married or, I don't know they live together whatever so they're an,
1: they're an but, item they're a thing they're a famous hollywood couple
0: right they they they're they're the any food power couple so so jo- joanna has is the copy copywriting expert and she's wrote copy hackers and uh so I guess she has like a newsletter that she sends out to her you know people who've downloaded the ebook or whatever, and so I guess they had a link in the newsletter to. A little, this little blog post that uh, Lance wrote. And as a result of it, he got three sessions in a week. Just from that. Just It's
1: just like going to be, it's actually going to be quite easy to get work flowing through that site once we <laughs> once we get it up and get some experts on there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Because I'll, I'll, I mean, the, the key way to do it is, I mean, obviously if you're already like a really well-known expert and have like Ten or twenty thousand Twitter followers. Then all you have to do is every once in a while write a tweet out and say, "Hey, you know, hire mm-hmm. me on foot if you need uh, for an hour if you need help with anything." And you know, those people you have a following because they're because people think that they're they really know what they're talking about, right? And so, if people follow them, and it, you know, some percentage we're going to want re- got handholding and and in personal help. And I, but the other way of doing it is what Lance did, which is I think you you write write a blog post tutorial, or, hey, here's a new trick, or here's some tricks on how to do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, maybe it hits Hacker News, or at least gets some visibility on Twitter, or whatever. I mean, you know, you spend an hour or two writing something like that, and you could get five, 10, 20, you know, sessions as a result. Mm. And then those people tend to come back. I mean, one thing we're noticing is that, is that any foo clients tend to come back sometimes for, this, uh, you know, the same, the same expert, but also for other experts. Like they go. I feel they like really, they
1: just go back and shop because they just they, they want to spend time with good people. Like <laughs> there's even that that basic effect of it.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's like well, that, that really, well, you know, it's like well, it works so well. It's like hey, I got this world class expert, and they really saved me a ton of time and and removed a lot of uncertainty and confusion and, and you know the sort of analysis through paralysis through analysis you know, that they were suffering from. And, and they're just like, that was so awesome. And um, there's gotta be other people on here who can help me with some of my other problems.
1: I feel like we shouldn't speak about any food, uh like using any foo until we've got it, got this next stuff done. Like we sort of need to, we're, we're kind of at this proving ground point where we actually need to get this thing out the door. Mm-hmm. And like, so I don't think we should, um, big, big any foo up in any way. <laughs> I feel embarrassed to, 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 to kind of say how good any foo is until we've done that. Do, do, well, okay. Do, 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 so do you know what I mean,
0: don't use any foo for two more weeks. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no one. Do, do use any
1: foo, do use any foo. Like it obviously it's awesome, right? It's awesome for the, for the people who we have on it right now, but at the same time, I don't know, like, what, what do you think? What do you think?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I mean, I like, yeah, I, I, I kind of like, uh, Look at it and go, okay, well, it's sort of embarrassing that some of the stuff isn't fixed or done yet. But, you know, I, wh- wh- what can I say? It's just not done yet. <laughs> you know, I just there's a lot to do.
1: I mean, yeah, well, I'm, I mean, I'm completely pl- consumed with Plugio. You are consumed with Uber and, well, how's App Ignite going, by the way?
0: Yeah, Uber, App Ignite, three kids, you know, everything else. So, how's yeah. App Ignite? Uh, it's sort of in the same phase. I mean, we're just sort of making steady progress. I told you we're shooting for like a you know month, so by a few more weeks, and we'll hopefully have like um, sort of a basic, solidly working internal tool, and then we're going to kind of decide at that point. And then, we'll have, and of course, the um, we'll have uh, up on GitHub, we'll have some of the base core libraries. Have you started any of the documentation yet? Yeah, uh, Guyon is working on that. Yeah, you know. oh, awesome. So we we came out. We said, All right, we're going to use like a project management app that has lots of different relationships and and uh, that. So that you can look at what the how you would set up your models and how you could do your queries really simply, you know, something that says okay, you got projects and users and projects and tasks and comments and tags, and so how do these things relate and how do you do all that stuff? So that's what he's wrapping up right now.
1: Are you do are you going to do anything like a sort of auto documentation system where it kind of parses the code and looks at the comments in the code and just builds out automatic docs?
0: Uh, I haven't really, haven't really thought much about doing that. I mean, right now it's more he's we're working on the tutorial, not sort of like API documentation. Okay, yeah, yeah. Here's how you, here's how you use it. You know, here's how you do an insert or an update or a delete or find or find all or whatever. Because yeah, so, I want
1: to, I want to write an API for Plugio, right? I want, I basically all, I mean, Plugio is 100% Ajax driven, so it it doesn't take a lot to convert that into an API. And I'd love to just. What I'm worried about is if there's this whole documentation area that's like somewhere else, um, some other system, I don't know, WordPress or something, it's going to be far removed from the actual code. I'd like to think of a good way of putting really good documentation. I don't mean like, have you ever heard of um, PHP doc? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah. So the thing about that is that's that seems to be quite rudimentary document. I Like I actually mean fully formatted docs. So I don't know, I haven't kind of thought of a good architecture or a good way to put the docs. In the same location as the code, and make it all hang together nicely.
0: Um, have you uh, have you done any research for it, or is this? <laughs> no, I haven't. I'm, so, I'm sort of thinking like for
1: every .php, have a like a .htm and just put it in the same directory
0: right next to it, so it's there. You know, mm-hmm. and then maybe in a, maybe in a subdirectory. It seems like it would kind of cl- you know clutter up your directory .php. I wouldn't want the HTML files in the php directory just create like a subdirectory called docs for every every directory of php code there's a docs subdirectory and it has all at one-to-one correspondence or yeah something.
1: that's probably a good idea that's probably a good idea so 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 in your in your code base yeah have a have a docs directory that sounds like something nice and then and then have a script that you know the, the basic script into the docs will automatically read in all the directories read in all the doc files and print out links to them and parse the h1 tags from each of those that kind of thing
0: yeah, Maybe there's a way you could do it. I mean, I have a feeling PHP doc probably does part of this, for at least to some of this, but maybe what you could do is um, you could have a, these files could be, you could have a little section where you could say, this is custom, you know, writing. So it doesn't replace that. So it reads up with a block of code anything within this block is stuff that you're mm-hmm. adding. So that if you if you write an extra description or exf- extra exf- explanation, that is more than you would want in a comment section of your code, but it's something that you want in the docs. Because, uh, so much-
1: I mean, like with API docs, you want like big tables, you know, lots of, lots of kind of Excel style tables with parameters and parameter, parameter values and parameter meanings and little ex, you know little snippets of sample API responses and all that stuff. Which is probably a little bit too much to put in comments.
0: <laughs> it would be that would make it that would make it really painful to yeah read people, yeah exactly the, the, the source code. <laughs> I hate it when I, I mean honestly I just hate it when you have these massive the amount of comments and these huge boilerplate stuff in front of every function. It's like, ah, you know, it's just, most of it is just like obvious. It's just like, you're just repeating the name of the function. You're repeating, it's obvious what it does. I mean, I understand why it's done. It's just, I find it a little frustrating. So, and, and then going to the next step and having even more elaborate, um, you know, ex, excl- explanations and examples, that would just be just crazy. That'd be too much. Plus, it'd be painful to format the right way on comments. I think it would just be, no, you don't want to do that, I don't think. Well, cool. So, um, can we switch to or do you want
1: to? Yeah, sure. Go for
0: it. So, um, I, uh, I got one kind of big thing to talk about, a big idea that I have. Ooh. So I guess I'll, go, I'll go into that. Yeah, that's kind of so, Um, and then a few sub, sub ideas. Um, so, you know, I've been teaching, as I've mentioned in the last couple of shows, I've been sort of teaching Colby, my seven year old son, uh, basic electronics. Mm-hmm. because he just is he's a, he's a natural engineer just he's be, he's a self-described engineer since the age of three <laughs> right <laughs> it's all he does is build stuff i wake up first thing in the morning and he's got some new project he's working on you know and he'll work on it for days <clears throat> so i started thinking like you know and he has this circuit kit you know called snap electronics or something oh, just i used pretty-
1: to love those things when i was a kid
0: yeah, that's pretty neat. So he's been playing with that. And I was like, you know, I just don't think he really understands what's going on. So I think it would be better not just to, just to follow directions and put together a circuit and see some sounds beep or whatever. It would be really cool as if he could understand what was going on with the voltage and current and resistance and what's a parallel, how, how parallel and series circuits work. And, you know, and then actually be able to construct one from scratch mm-hmm. that did something. You know, it's, and it's this one thing if I say, okay, well, here's, if I, if I print out in a magazine, like, you know, you're, you know, when you first on your code, it's like, here are 10 lines of code and you actually type them in and it does something, even though you don't really understand the code. I mean, that's a marginal value, but when you can actually write code from scratch because you have an outcome that you want, you have a project you want, that's really powerful. And uh, so I've been starting to teach him that and I was like, this is actually really cool. And, and I was like, I'd love to be able to do this with like a bunch of different subjects, like say chemistry, like biology, yeah, you know like astrophysics, whatever, and I started thinking about it like, you know, it would be cool as if you could do this at a larger scale, like you get a group of kids together and you do like a regular thing once a, once a week after school, maybe with some on the weekend, and you you create sort of a, a like a a club out of it, so like in and I'm going to use a couple of analogies, so for instance um. In, in, in a lot of sports, particularly in soccer, you have these things called soccer clubs Mm. and you have like your normal, like recreational soccer. Every city has what they call their AYSO, which is like American Youth Soccer Association. And you just go up and everybody's, you know, your parent could sign you up, you could put on a team and you play. And, and, and it's sort of, you know, it goes for a couple months and that's pretty much it. And, but then they have something called club soccer, which you actually have to try out for the team. And, and so you have to be you know, really good and they train year-round and it gets pretty serious. And those kids, by the time they're 13 or 14, are pretty amazing. And those are the kids, the kids are going to go on and play at the college level and then maybe go and play pro or whatever. I mean, they, they're playing club from a pretty early age. And they've even upgraded that. That's even gone through a series of iterations. When I was a kid, it was just called like the travel team. Like each AYSO league would have like a one travel team, which is kind of like an all-star team that then kind of broke off and played year-round together. And now they've created these travel clubs, and they have different gradations of, like, bronze, silver, silver, league, gold, premier, all these different l- levels of club. And now they have this thing called academies, which are year-round. You're not allowed to play with any other teams or high school team or anything like that, and it's real serious. And these kids are really – they're really pushing these kids to go it, almost to be able to play at, like, the pro level. And they're, tr- and they're sort of modeling it after how it's done in Europe. Like, each the academy teams are usually attached to, like, a pro team like Barcelona or Manchester United or, you know, Bayern Munich, those all have So like, like farm enemies. teams. Yeah, but the farm teams start at a very young age. Like okay. they start at age eight or nine years old or whatever, probably nine years old. And then they start, and they sign pro, in Europe anyway, they sign pro contracts and they're like 15 years old. Like if you're at Barcelona or Real Madrid and you're in the Real Madrid Academy and you're 11, 12 years old, it's really serious. And when you're 15, they're like, okay, we're going to sign a contract with you. Meaning that they can either sell you, once you become you know, hmm. an adult, they can sell your contract to another pro team hmm. or they can bring you on and you can play for Real Madrid. So you're itself.
1: already under contract at that young age. That's crazy.
0: I don't know how, I don't know a whole lot about it, but I've, I've read that and I'm, I've heard that that's how it works. So in America, they're trying to replicate that um, because... You know, in order to get the U.S. soccer to be competitive with what's going on in Europe, they're like, okay, let's, what are they doing in Europe that's different? And one of, one of the things that they're doing is they like, let's get the best kids together and have them train on, with top-notch coaching the right way year-round. Okay, and so
1: now you started this about the circuit board science, tra- like science the, training. So how does that sort go?
0: So I was kind of thinking, okay, well, okay, so let's say you have kids that are particu- have a real aptitude for this kind of stuff and love it. Like they just have a passion for it, like Colby does. I mean, you know, I, I mean, Colby likes sports, but if I say, "Hey, Colby, to f- football," a lot of t- or baseball or kick soccer, he's like, "Eh, nah, maybe." You know, sometimes <laughs> he's in the mood, sometimes he's not. Right? I mean, he's naturally good at all that stuff. But, but if you say, just, "Do
1: you want to build a spaceship?" He's always don't, like, I don't,
0: "Yes." I don't say it to him. I just walk out, and he's doing it. And yeah. then I walk out there again, he's still doing it. And then he's doing it some more, you know, right, I mean, okay. there's no, there's just not stopping him. He's a, he's a, just a force of nature when it comes to that. It's just, you can't, you can't stop him from taking stuff apart, which drives, you know, his mom crazy. <laughs> She's <laughs> like, what did you do? Why did you take that apart? <laughs> what are you Quit messing with that? you know? And um, so it's like, well, I, but there's nothing like that in the U S really. I mean, there are like, you can join like the math or physics club, the physics club and, and maybe compete in, in when you're in high school and compete in like certain el- physics Olympiad, or you can join like the math team and you do like, you, you do certain co- competitions based on certain types of math and, you know, but it's just real, it's just kind of the equivalent of how soccer was back before this club stuff started. It was just sort of ad hoc limited. So how would you execute this idea? Okay. Well, I think you'd start. Uh, so here's, here's my, here's, I'll go from, from how mm-hmm. I think it started and how I think it could grow. So, and, and, and I'll use one more soccer story to explain it. So about two years ago, two and a half years ago, Colby was five and he was in under six soccer, just starting soccer. And, you know, because I had done a little extra training with him and because he's athletic, you know, he was already better than the vast majority of the kids in the soccer program. And when I'd watch the games, every once in a while we'd play a team and I'd see one kid out there who would be, who was exceptional. Like that kid is like really good. Like he gets it. He's athletic and he understands what's going on. And the other kids are kind of clueless and some are kind of athletic, but they don't get it or whatever. And so I was like, you know, it'd be kind of cool to get some of these more talented kids at the end of the season and just like do like a weekend training session just for fun. You mm-hmm. know, just so that, rather than me going with Colby and say, hey, let's go kick the soccer ball around. It's like, hey, let's go do a training session with, you know, some kids. And that's what I did. I would t- I walk up to the parents if I saw a kid that I thought was really good. And I'd say, hey, I'm thinking about maybe doing like a weekend training session, you know, on Sundays or Saturdays after the season ends. I mean, it's, it's totally free and totally optional. I am just thought it'd be fun to do. And, you know, I coached, you know, I grew up playing soccer, or played in college, or whatever. So I know what I'm, you know, do it. just that they don't think I'm some weird guy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, you know, this is my son, Colby. And so, and, and, and I've thought that some of the parents would react kind of weirdly to that. They'd be like, well, what? The kid's like six or my kid's six years old. I mean, why would you do that? I mean, but it actually it was the opposite case. They, <laughs> they, they would go, they were like, oh, that sounds great. Because the thing is, the kids that were really good, they, they were kind of nuts about it, right? They were playing at constant. They were kicking the soccer bar in the house. They're like driving their parents nuts. You know, they're like, I want to play soccer, I want to play soccer. And, but then, when soccer season was over after two months, there was nothing to do until maybe summer camp. Yeah. And so, and they, and they, and they clearly ca- can recognize the fact that their kid is leaps and bounds ab- above all the other kids, which they, which they think is kind of sucks, right? Mm-hmm. So, my kid's really good, and all the other kids don't know what they're doing. It's kind of frustrating to watch this. And so, when I come up and say I pitch this kind of thing, they're all like, "That sounds really cool." And so, I was able to organize a group. It started out with like six kids from the. You know, there's about 20 teams, I think, and I grabbed about the six kids that I thought were about the strongest, and we started doing it. And then they, and then those kids, knew kids that played in other cities that were really good, and I got up to like 12 kids because they would say, "Hey, you know, we have this friend of ours, and the kid is amazing, and he loves soccer. Could we bring him out?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure, bring him out." I'm like, you see the qual? Are they can they play at this level? I mean, these kids are like, and They're like, yeah, yeah, I think you might be able to. And so I get up to like 12 kids, and we did. It was just like a weekend thing, and I would do for an hour, but it quickly morphed into two hours because the kids did not want to stop. <laughs> <laughs> like it would get to an hour, I'm like, all right, that's it, and the kids are like, what? And the kids are like refusing to stop playing, and the parent and I look for the parents. I'm like, do you want to? You want to go another like half hour? And the parents are like, just go. Because <laughs> the parents are like, <laughs> when you have little kids that are five, six, seven, eight years old, you just want them to burn the energy out. You're just like, whatever, man. So, so what, so
1: what were you doing? What were you doing in the sessions? I mean, were they playing a game against each other, or were you just training?
0: I I try and make everything really fun with with a with a focus on fundamentals and skills. So I don't like when they because if you just put a kid to say play, they don't learn anything. They have fun, but they don't learn anything. If you just have them do drills. They pick up skills, but they don't understand how to put it in the context of a game. And plus, it gets boring real quick. Mm-hmm. So I would try and make everything really fun... I would do lots of skill work, but I would make it into games. So I would be like, I'd call it shark attack or, or dinosaur. So or I would walk around, like they'd be square and they'd be dribbling <laughs> around. And I'd be like, rah! you know, chasing after them. <laughs> they'd be running around. And I'd be like, all right, you, you have a force field. If you can do a step over, I'd be like, rah! and they'd be like, do a step over. You better do a force field. I'll make it try. If not, I'd kick their ball. Like, you know, they'd have to go run and chase it. And they'd run it around and it's silly and fun. Are and, you but sure it was you're
1: in the right career? <laughs> Should you be actually training professional soccer kids? For I, for a genuine I career,
0: <laughs> I don't know, but I, I did. I, I think I did a, a good job. I was good at it because I would pay attention. I knew that I would pay attention to the skills that they need to learn. I, and I, I pushed them to a level that within four or five months, they were doing th- amazing things. Yeah. Just amazing stuff. And the parents were just blown away. I had them passing and doing strategy and the kind of control. Like they just, after seeing AYSO, they're just like, this is unbelievable. I and mean, it was part of that. Like, do you remember? There was like Team Black, the story about an IBM, the testers from back in the 60s or 70s when they took all the best testers and put them together and they became a whole, they raised to a whole new level of testing. Like they were not five times better. They were like 20 times better at testing. They would find, they could find bugs in anything. The point that they intimidated all the software engineers because they, and they, <laughs> and they kind of bound together. Do you remember that story? No, I don't. It sounds Oh, so it's kind of called awesome. Team Black. Yeah, I'll put a link to it. It's called Team Black and they just... The the idea was like, well, if we get all the best testers and we put them together, maybe you know we could have a better testing group. And it was exceeded far beyond what they thought. They 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 they, they started all wearing all black. They only wore black suits and black hats, and they were <laughs> you know they like took it seriously. And they they that's were awesome. just badasses, right? It yeah. rose to another level, and that's what you do when you bring when you you bring all the best people together and you raise the standards. It just starts to shoot through the roof, way beyond what people usually would predict, and so. And and um so I thought I could do the same thing with the kids, but I really wanted to make it fun. I mean the goal was three things. One, it's gotta be fun. If it's not fun, you're just killing their passion, right? You're making it to work. Two, they've gotta be learning some real skills. I mean, otherwise just send them to the playground and run around. So teach them real skills, make it productive in the sense that there's more that that it's worth the parents, you know, driving their kid to this thing and sitting out and watching their kid practice as opposed to just like letting them run around in the backyard, right? Mm -hmm. And the third is you want exercise. Right, You want these kids to burn off energy. And so we did that. So it was a success. And I did it for a year, but then they got to the age that the kids could start playing in like actual, like a proper club. And I just put Colby in like a club team. And I just said, all right, I just kind of outsourced it. <laughs> I right, said, right. Right. And I don't think they did quite as good a job as I did. I think, I don't think they're as fun. They do as, they don't make it as fun. They make it, it's a little more drudgery, unfortunately, but it's still like, okay, it's 80, 20, right? So a 20% of the effort and 80% of the payoff. Yeah. So I thought, what if I could do the same thing with math and science? You know, what if I could start out and say, get like, you know, start out with a half dozen kids and do maybe on a once in the weekend, say we get together somewhere and we'll do like, you know, electronics or we'll do chemistry or we'll do stuff and we'll kind of build on stuff, make it fun, make it project based, but make sure kind of keep reiterating the fundamentals at the beginning so they're building on stuff, so they don't just forget stuff you're not just exposing them to one neat thing after the other. And then after a couple of years, they've been exposed to a lot of neat stuff, but they don't remember any of it or know any of it. Mm-hmm. And so yesterday I went, um, Colby's baseball team had like a um, end of year uh, ceremony type thing. And I was, and I was while watching, I was talking to this um, woman who's a, uh, she's a mother of two of the kids on the team. And um, uh her, uh, she actually teaches uh, astrophysics at UC Riverside. And, and uh, I, Colby had just tested into this sort of the, the like this gifted ta- and talented program mm-hmm. at school and her, I knew her kids were in it. And I and I, so I asked her, I said, well, what's this, what's the story with gate? Is it, I said, Colby looks like he just tested into that. And she's like, yeah, it's kind of stupid. They don't really do anything. They cut all the budgets. So it's nothing. i go, like, oh, well, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you expect? Right. And so I go, well, I said, "Well, let me tell you an idea I have." So I started explaining this idea, and her, her eyes immediately, like, immediately lit up. She's like, "That would be fantastic!" She's like, "Yeah, and you could teach them this. You could do projects, and you could do that. So like, she immediately got it how, how to do it. And 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 I, I told her all these I, kind of theories and ideas about like how I think you could make it fun, and you could use like badges, kind of like in Boy Scouts, Girl mm-hmm. Scouts. Like, you get your, your badge for you know making starting a fire with whatever you get a fire, or, or I don't know whatever they are, right? So you like, you get your, your chemistry level one badge, (laughs) you know, you get your genetics badge, your, you get your astrophysics badge. Right. And so it gives them extra motivation to learn cool stuff. Right. And I was like, you know, I'll bet you that if you started something like this, just like that soccer thing that I did started taking off and everybody wanted to bring more people into it, math, uh, something like this would take off. Probably even more because parents can be much more fired up about their about their kids doing that kind of stuff than just say playing soccer. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, you grow it like within like a few years, you might be able to get it so you have like enough kids and enough money so you could say, how about everybody throws in fifty bucks a month, hundred dollars a month, and then we can buy some actual like get some office space and use that as like a as like a work space laboratory you know, and then you could actually make it more regular things. Like you could pull in some, you know, kids from Caltech, which is like a half a block away, like who want to, you know, work as sort of like teaching assistants or whatever. And you could have like, okay, you know, we have stuff going on every day after school from three to eight and different age groups. Do and people then we have pay like- to be in junior league. Mm-hmm. People pay to be in everything.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, is it like, are you, is, is it sort of like a junior league, but
0: where you do stuff? No, junior leagues for uh, adult women. Oh, that's, is it? That's a volunteer. That's a volunteer organization. that's oh. a they do fundraising and volunteer for community stuff. But every activity that you have for kids, whether it's art or sports or music or educational, it's all cost money for the most part, unless it's something that's being offered through the city for underprivileged youth. It's in an, usually it's fairly expensive.
1: Okay, so I understand it, the basic idea of what you're saying, but what I'm wondering is like, how do you execute on it from a point of view of? getting people to know, scaling it up to the different types of activities, you know, science, football, whatever, like what's your grand plan? No,
0: no, you don't do it to football or anything. It would just be math and science. Okay. Okay. So it'd be like doing the same thing for math and science that you would do that some of these clubs have done for sports, right? That you take, it would actually probably attract the kids that were really good and really interested in this stuff, right? Because the kids who aren't really good or really interested aren't going to want to do it. They're not going to want to, and this stuff, but the kids like Colby are going to be like attracted to it, and are going to want to do it all the time. And if you if if once you get to a certain level, you could you could you know you could do it for free, and until you get like a dozen or so people, and then you could start pitching like, well, if we put in a little bit of money, we could do X, Y, and Z. And the reality is that people around this Pasadena, San Marino, lucky out, have a lot of money, so throwing in a l- some money to do something like this wouldn't be a big deal if they thought it had a lot of value. But do you do you start it from a grassroots?
1: By just talking to people about it? Or do you have a website? I mean, do you spread it through Junior League? I mean, how do you do it?
0: No, no, no. I would just do it just exactly how I started the soccer thing. I would just go. Like, when I talked to um, Corinna, who's the expert, I said, hey, what do you think? And she's like, oh, that's awesome. She's like, oh, we could get so-and-so. He's uh," like, a lot of people are scientists at JPL. I mean, JPL is like a mile away. Caltech's a half mile away, Right. So you have, you have all of these scientists who live right around here and all we have, we have like more private schools per capita than I think anywhere in the country. I mean, there's money and people care about education and care about you know, this kind of stuff that it would, once you had something like this, the word would get out. People would be like, oh you no, know, my kid goes to this thing and they've done all this cool science and math stuff. And they'd be like, and the other parents would be like, what, what is this? What are and you the scientists would probably want to do it for free. Yeah. You, well, what I think you could do is you could say, you know, contact some, you probably just people who would know scientists it's like, does anybody know anybody who's like a molecular biologist at Caltech it would be cool to come over and start talking about, you know, what you can do with synthetic genomes and decoding genomes and what that stuff means, you know, and, you know, probably somebody would know somebody. I mean, I know a fair number of scientists in the area and I, and it's, I don't even know that many compared to probably other people. And then once you started developing a little network, there'd probably be a lot of people would want to get involved just for the fun of it. And if they had kids, then they would definitely want to get involved.
1: Well, I think it's a great idea.
0: Yeah, I think I'm going to do it. <laughs> I think you <laughs> I think I, should. I think it's good. I think, I think I'm going to start something small. and But I think you could ultimately, say, five years down the road, you could have some serious, like... Uh, you know, I, I, I'd be like an office space or something that could be like a laboratory and place where you could do instruction. And you could do cool stuff. You could be like take field trips to like JPL or SpaceX or whatever. You could do like Friday night, like, you know, movie night, right? You'd work some cool like science fiction stuff and pizza. You could have everybody working on the project. They could come in at different times. It's like open lab and people would come on and work on their ongoing projects. You could do badges, say, oh, I want to get my math, my uh, number theory badge, or I want to get my, you know, game theory badge or my genetics badge or whatever. Sort of like the scouts, except for your brain rather than for nature. For math and science specifically, the Math and Science Academy. So, and I think what we could do is, I think kids could blow way past the expectation of what kids normally do in high school. Because you know, you read about these kids who do these amazing things, like you talk about, like discovering that biodegradable plastic or yeah. nine-year-old or create an iPhone game. If you, those are a lot of kids who did that on, kind of on their own with probably minimal supervision. If you had sort of a a, a, a group of people who were really helping these kids go as fast as they can, kind of like Derek Siver's There Is No Speed Limit <laughs> concept. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and you could also have kids teaching other kids. You could say, okay, well, like, you, to get your, you know, astrophysics expert badge, you have to teach one of these other kids the basic astrophysics that you, that is in, that you know, that you learned already. Yeah, you know, that's you a
1: could, very nice idea. I like it.
0: kind of self-replicating and kind of... And because I think a lot of kids who are into this stuff, they like want to do it, but there's nothing to really do it. And then the stuff they do in school is kind of boring and kind of limited. And it's just limited to like regurgitating information or taking tests, which is kind of boring. And they really have no idea about how really cool most of this stuff is and how it works in the real world. And I think if you make it project-based and you also show them the really cool stuff like you pitch it to them like why is biology cool like you you do the like the kind of stuff craig venter is doing that stuff is cool but as soon as you just start talking about a cell and like you know, memorizing the parts and they don't really understand why they should care it's just kind of like oh hum mm-hmm. right you say all right you want to talk about physics let's talk about spacex let's talk about like what it would take to launch a rocket into orbit i mean what does that mean how do you calculate that you know you know I think you could pitch it in a certain way that, and I think you can also dig into cooler stuff later. Like you can skip a lot of the preliminary stuff and just focus on the, just the basic stuff that you needed to to do the cooler projects.
1: Well, this could be your big idea. Like you said, you said you'd, you'd wish you'd done a bigger idea. This could be it. <laughs> so this, I mean, but no, but seriously, because if you you could you could you know if you could um you could change the shape of the the kids of America.
0: Well, yeah, man, but. <laughs> Well, we'll start with, like, three. <laughs> start with three. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> we we'll uh, daughters and then, you know, maybe get one or two other kids and um, get, like, because she said next year when she, her teaching load is going to work out, so she'll have all her afternoons free. She's like, I would, she's like, I would totally have time for this. She's like, she's like, I'm in. So, I said, well, my plan is I'm going to write, like, a big blog post article that's going to explain my whole theory. It's going to be called A Blueprint for the Ultimate Math and Science Academy. And I'm going to, like, write down, like, all the things of how I think you want to make it work. Basically, mm-hmm. all, basic learn, all the new learning theories and how to make it fun, how to make it kind of add gamification to it, how you can push kids way – actually, allow kids to accelerate and go way beyond where they would normally go, all that kind of stuff. And so when kids go – You just put conference. parents to your blog post. Yeah, that's what I mean. So here's, 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 here are my real thoughts on this. This is how it would work. And then um, and I think you could go from there. And uh, yeah, so that's the plan. Yeah, that's I like my, it. So, uh, cause I, I mean, I, I'm doing stuff with Colby, the electronics and that's working well, but I'm like, you know, I think we could scale this up a little bit and make it even more fun because if I'm just doing with Colby, you know, it's hard. It's sometimes you forget to make time to do it or it kind of falls aside because a lot of stuff is busy. But if you have some like a regular thing that you have with other kids, it becomes a thing, right? It's like, that's part of the schedule. Sundays at 11am to 1pm we're doing, you know, you know, math academy, math science academy or whatever. Mm-hmm. I just got to come up with a name for it. <laughs> Genius labs or something. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I like it. Uh, something cool. So awesome. uh, Really, really uh, nice.
0: So it's just an, it's an idea. I think if I start pursuing it, we'd probably pursue it in the fall. I'll kind of just kind of consolidate some ideas and come up with a map for it and then maybe get something going in the fall. Yeah. So, well, thanks. So um, I, I got two smaller things I want to talk about. Do you have, do you want to?
1: No, I'm, I'm pretty much all out of stuff. I just had um, one quick thing, which is on Hacker News today. Why you shouldn't discuss your startup name, names in cafes. There's just no, there's just a, there's a group of guys going, oh, we've got such a cool startup, so cool cool startup idea, and they they're talking about their their startup idea. Oh, it's so cool. Oh yeah, we'll call it this.com, that.com, this.com. that dot com, this dot com. And then there's a guy sitting on the table next to them, and he's like, uh, at the, at the end of their discussion, he's like, hey guys, uh, I just registered all your domain names if, <laughs> that you just shouted out to each other. <laughs> if you want them, uh, talk to me. What a Jerk. Yeah. Jeez, this,
0: wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty annoying. That's too bad. That was all I had. That's it? That's it. <laughs> um, you know, one thing along with the whole, the whole learning stuff, mm-hmm. I was, yeah, up. Um, you remember I talked about the spaced repetition learning, this memorization I've yeah, talked that's about.
1: That's why we're waiting for memory hole.
0: Yeah, the memory hole. And that was all based on some of the theories, at least that came from the uh, super memo. Um, software, mm-hmm. that the, and I, I reread the article last night. Uh, it was like a 2006 article on Wired about how the guy created this. Because you have this exponential decay in your um, in in, in the information that you remember, mm-hmm. and by re, by repeated in a, a spaced um exposure to this not to these facts or information, right at the point you're about to forget it, that's when it is best to reinforce it. And, uh, I, but I, I found something called spaced um, learning, which is different, which I'd never heard of, which is really cool. And it was, I guess it was first um, uh, written about in a 2005 um, article in Scientific American. And the idea that these, these researchers just discovered is that if you, if you ha- if you teach something to, to somebody for like, um, you know, say 10 minutes, you do like eight to 10 minutes of like exposure, say so like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to teach you calculus i'm gonna start teaching about what a derivative is we spend eight minutes then what you do is you take a 10 minute break and the 10 minute break is key and you, you make sure you're doing something else you can go like, do exercise you can go run around whatever do something other than thinking about the derivative okay then you come back you do it for another eight to ten minutes and then you take another 10 minute break and then you come back and do 10 more minutes and it turned out that the way that the um where your synapses and everything is stimulated that 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 really makes it a long-term memory as opposed to a short-term memory. Hmm. Which, it was interesting. I was like, well, how would you combine that with, like, spaced repetition? So, so I mean, because apparently they both have scientific evidence supporting them. So it seemed like you'd want to do in your first exposure, you kind of do it in that way, like quick bursts, like here, like explain it, and then go off and do something else, you know, whatever. And then the next you, you know, three days later you present it again in some kind of limited capacity and then like two weeks and three months and whatever.
1: So are we saying it's better to do that than it is to sit down and learn the same thing for half an
0: hour? Oh yeah, way better. Because what happens is you you want to excite the synapses again two more times and you you want to use a different part of your brain. So you don't want, because apparently it's that, it's the letting your brain go into a different mode where it's thinking about something else and then come back to it and you re-excite those same synapses or
1: whatever. That's crazy. So you learn, so basically every hour you split into two in 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 a sense, two sets of 10 minutes, one on and one off. And you Well can just,
0: three, three, three sessions broken up by 10-minute breaks. So 5 5 on off on off on. So 3 10 minute, 30 minutes you do three 10-minute chunks separated by 10 minutes or three 8 minutes separated by 10 minutes. So what's the total time? I don't know, it was a 30, uh, 46 minutes, I guess that would be right.
1: So 46 minutes to learn any space. So, but, so it needs to be uh, something that you, that you can get through in 10 minutes kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Well, they said, well, what, what they discovered is that people learn it way better than if they did one sitting and that also that, um, they could, you could cram because you only have 10 minutes, you can cram a ton of information in that 10 minutes. Hmm.
1: That's interesting. That's but, cool. Uh,
0: yeah, I thought that was really cool. I was because I was starting I was like, doing some electronics with Colby earlier today and I was like and I started going more than it was more like fifteen minutes. I'm like, oh, I should stop. <laughs> we come back a little bit, you know? And um and and, and and then reinforce it rather than sitting for a long time. But it also reminded me of an article we had read about um do, do you we discussed this probably three or four months ago. It was about the um oh, what was it called? Um it was a kind of um wasn't practice? It was like directed practice or something. I can't remember the term for it. But they were talking about like what, 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 what differentiated uh, or deliberate practice is what it's called. Um, Dr. So what, what differentiated say like world class or, or experts in a certain field versus you know people who were just good? Say, so mm-hmm.
1: need- oh, it was the le- it was the level of focus that they put into their training for shorter periods of time.
0: That's right. So they would go very small bursts. 10, 15 minutes, and then they would take breaks. Whereas the people who weren't, ex- who were, who weren't as expert would tend to spend longer periods of time kind of dicking around, <laughs> you know, doing stuff that they kind of already knew. So what they would do is for the 10 or 15 minutes or whatever when they burst, they would really stretch themselves. So if you're a pianist, you would do try and do scales that were just really hard for you, just beyond what your, your competency was, and then you would take breaks. And then you'd come back and you'd constantly push on those things that were just beyond you. Hmm. And it kind of reminded me of the spaced learning. They would burst of just intensity of either bringing in new knowledge or, or working on skills that were just beyond you, that were just, it was hard because it was beyond you. Hmm. And, and, and in aggregate, it was much less time. Like, they were, like the experts, the musicians and the chess players actually spent less time training and were less stressed about it and were better than the, uh, than the other people. Does this seem kind of similar? yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of a, so I think it's, I think it's the same phenomenon, just, just sort of uh, manifested or just in different ways, skill-based say than just pure information. So I think that's, if I was doing like this math science academy, that was one of the things I'd try and follow that kind of a pattern.
1: So are you still thinking of doing some software that helps you do that or it, would you use someone else's?
0: I'm really thinking about creating this little memory hole project just for myself because I just keep getting pissed off that I forget stuff that I want to remember that I'm constantly grasping for facts and information that I knew or should know and I just kind of can't re- well I feel the same way I mean that's why I'd like you to build it so I can use it yeah I think I'm going to build it pretty soon I mean it to be real simple I'll build something real simple that maybe just you and I can use it first because I don't I'm not going to make it a big thing just just, just good enough that like you know it's it it's, it solves the problem and then so
1: George has come in a few times and said, "How long are you going to be?" <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, I got one last thing based on this, and we'll cut it. And okay, then other uh, sure. topics, but we'll save those for next week. Okay. Um, the you know, there's an article I read. It was um, about um, about memories, and that's why I want to talk about now because it's so it's so related. Yeah. And they talked like uh, it was from Wired magazine. Let's see what is the article is like in March, and the and the title in the front of Wired. It says, "One pill to erase your worst memories. Want to try it?" <laughs> And what they could do, what they, what they discovered is that people who have like post traumatic stress disorder, you know, people that like go to war zones or, or maybe see some horrendous um, car accident or something that just affects them forever. People have been attacked or raped and things like that. And they just, it's just, it just continually affects them and like they relive it. They have like flashbacks to it all yeah. the time. You know, and you hear that happen to people from veterans all the time They come out from war zones and they're like, they hear like a, a backfire from a car or firecracker and they literally freak out and they just feel like they're in the back in a bomb zone again. Yeah. So where They were, I guess there was some researchers doing it and then it turns a lot of people thought it was BS, but then it turns out that actually his, uh, his, his, uh, Experiments worked, and the bottom line is I guess there's a certain type of um, enzyme called uh, what's was it called like p zeta or something and that I think when you when you bring up a memory this uh, or or this this uh, this enzyme w- goes to reinforce it so basically what happens is is when they put they give you a drug that kind of inhibits that like you don't you no longer remember it. <laughs> It erases it. Because it, it turns out the way memories work, according to the research, which is really interesting, is that when you remember something, when you, when you make a memory and then you come back and you remember it, you are making a new copy of it and you're deleting the old copy. The old copy doesn't exist anymore. Hmm. is not. It's gone. It's like, and so if you create an enzyme that doesn't allow you to make the new copy, the old copy has gone. So you're basically loading it into memory. You're loading it to memory, and if you don't able to save it to disk, it's off, it's off, it's out of the hard disk, it's deleted. So it's like if I bring something out of the hard disk, it's like every time you bring something um, for a web page, a database, you do a delete on it. And if you don't do an update on that or save, it's gone. That's nuts. And so what they were also doing is um, they were talking about like they would give people – Ecstasy uh, and uh, you know that the drug ecstasy and and it would give them so when they would so when they would ask them to like describe the memory so like let's say that you saw this horrendous traffic accident and it's just and you can't get it in your head and it's just and you're it's just it's just a problem then you describe the whole thing and then what happened is the next time you you would come back to it and read it to bring it up you would re, you read it to yourself you would be, be on ecstasy and so and then would associate this really positive feeling <laughs> to the actual facts of the of the incident. Oh my Lord. And they tried this, some other drug stuff. So um, I thought that was kind of interesting, but they said that's also kind of why people tend to forget um, uh, the facts, like the facts evolve because every time you make a copy of it, it's kind of like the Xerox, like it's less, it tends to be less accurate, right? So like you, like the, the 20th copy, you're just reinforcing the things that you recalled the last time as opposed to the actual, the initial recollection. Well, that's weird.
1: I mean, in a way if you play around with those enzymes there must be a way to also create photographic memory by basically stimulating that exact same enzyme basically forcing you to remember everything
0: yeah it's interesting yeah i mean so okay a couple of things about that uh I think that they were talking about one of these articles, I was reading a bunch of memory stuff last night, and one of the, were, one of the articles they are talking about how you have, I guess it was in the SuperMemo Plus art, um, article on Wired from 2006, and they are talking about how you have the recall strength, and a, there's something like the storage strength and the recall strength or something. like. So all these memories we have are there. It's just our recollection, like we just can't pull them up. And so these couple different, I don't know, you know, So there's two, there's two values assigned to each one. So the strength of the memory and their your, your recall ability. And, um, and so if they're always there, then there's got to be some way using some kind of, uh, like you said, some kind of enzyme stimulation or chemical that would allow it to just like easily so recall. always
1: there goes against retrieve and delete.
0: Yeah, so I don't know. Well, if it's, well, if it's always there. Okay, you
1: know, what it's, you know what it must be? Okay, I've, I've got it, I've got it. It's like when you have like an offsite backup. So the, so the memories are always stored in this kind of offsite backup and somehow, uh, so they're kind of there, but generally speaking, you have like this short term memory or this, this quick access memory. That's probably what, what he's talking about in regarding this other stuff. But then your general pool of memories is stored in some offsite subconscious backup.
0: Right. So it's always there, but it's (coughs) like, if you, if you don't pull it up, it doesn't mean it's gone. Right. You know, deleted though, if you don't, if you don't have the enzyme to, to save it again or, or whatever. So <laughs> <laughs> I think, and so when you think about like being re- represented, like a whole spaced learning concept, like, you know, 10 minutes on, 10 minutes off, that sort of thing. And you go, okay, well, what's actually happening with the recall and storage in those three 10 minute bursts? I'm wondering. Mm-hmm. So it's recall, you're restoring the same information. I think part of it is maybe making slightly different connections. I wonder if you present the information in slightly different ways. Like you make different connections, like you have different recall patterns because, you know, sometimes you see things visually, they're they're diagrams and stuff. And sometimes you see equations and sometimes you might see an actual physical demonstration or somebody speaking, talking about it as opposed to reading it written form. You know, connection because you've heard like certain types of things in memory. They say like if when you're studying, it, there's a couple things that really increase your ability to recall. Which is one is the space the space repetition thing we talk about, SuperMemo Plus. The second thing was um, active recall versus sort of passive recall. So if I if, if if I keep showing you the the question and the answer without you having to think about what the answer is, just looking at the question. So if I do a flashcard and I show you one side and I say, okay, here's a here's a vocabulary word. What's the definition? and you have to sit there trying to recall it, that works much better than if I just keep, sh- if I show you the word and the definition together. Yeah, And, and, uh, w- w- so active recall, the other one was, um, doing it in different places. <laughs> so if you're, if you're lying on your couch studying, then the next time be make sure you're in the library, next time be the cafe, you know, it, because you have different, the context of where you're learning it affects, creates more connections or something. Mm. And so I, it might also work is if you if you're if it's the if the if the information comes at you in different ways so maybe you watch a video about it maybe you do some problems or maybe talk to somebody about it something like that all right that, so <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know, I could go on and on about this but I think that's I think we're out of time and I think George is going to kill you if you don't get out <laughs> so um yeah uh but we'll do um I'll I'll keep you posted on the uh my uh math and science concept cuz I think that I think that might be kind of a cool thing to talk about, if I can get it going. Yeah, it sounds awesome. So, all right, that's a wrap. We're out.